Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Relations between France and Italy hit their lowest point since 1940 yesterday when France recalled its ambassador to Rome. The two-month-old yellow vest movement is square in the middle of it. The Italian Deputy Prime Minister Luigi Di Maio from the Five Star Movement met with French yellow vest protesters. He declared the winds of change had crossed the Alps. The cross-border encouragement of populism was too much for the government of Emmanuel Macron, and France's ambassador came home. Let's go to Paris and Alexander Hurst, writer and executive editor of the We Are Europe magazine, and his article last month in The New Republic is The Ugly, Illiberal, Anti-Semitic Heart of the Yellow Vest Movement. Thanks for joining us, Alexander Hurst. Hi, Jerome. Happy to be here. Uh, let's do a little background uh, about the tensions between France and uh, Italy. There's been tensions over the migrant movement. What, what is the uh, background to all this? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Italy really feels like its European partners haven't supported it in dealing with the migrant crisis. Um, I think for U.S. listeners, it's important to put the numbers in context. Um, when you see the amount of sort of fear and emotion that Trump is able to arouse over migrant caravans that are, you know, maybe a few people, a few thousand people at most, Italy has had five years of dealing with um, a sustained migrant crisis that would be the population adjusted equivalent of basically one, you know, three to four thousand person caravan arriving every single day across the U.S. Mexico border. Right. right? So um, it's, you know, it's significant for Italy and it feels like the, the burden sharing from the rest of the EU hasn't really been there. And that's true of France, straight up. Right. And so one of the origins of this back and forth France-Italy antagonism was over the summer when Italy refused to allow um, the Aquarius, which is this NGO-run ship that's been rescuing migrants in the Mediterranean, to land in an Italian port with about 630 migrants on board. Um, And Macron uh, gave Italy trouble for that, and he... Um, He sort of put down the Italian government, and at the same time, it was a bit hypocritical because France wasn't offering to land the Aquarius in its own ports. All right, so there's that kind of tension going on, and then we get into this this five-star and yellow vest alliance. Um, How does this kind of thing happen? Because it it seems like the alliance of populists in Europe – uh, some people think it's out of bounds and you, you shouldn't be crossing borders and, and doing politics. And other people seem to think, well, that's, you know, that's what the EU is all about. We, all, we do that all the time. Right. Um, I think there's a few interesting things to take note of here. One is, is that the Italian government kind of looks like the Gilets jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement, and that it's a combination of the far left and the far right. And so there are a lot of divisions, you know, between Di Maio and Salvini. And so some of this is, I think, domestic Italian politics is part of it. Um, When the government first came into power, the Five Star Movement had more support. That's shifted now towards La Ligue. And it could be Di Maio making a play to to generate support for for his own party, which is in government with Salvini, but is also a political competitor to Salvini. Um, But as to your point on the EU, I think, you know, this is maybe a Euro-optimist way to look at it. But um, if your vision for the European Union is eventually to be a sort of quasi United States of Europe, then it really shouldn't bother you to have De Maio interfering, if we want to put that in quotes, in French politics any more than having Bernie Sanders go to Georgia to campaign for 
Stacey Abrams. No, all right, but Macron is the guy who is super pro EU about this, but he still believes in sovereign countries. You can make the argument, well, these are sovereign countries. You don't don't still don't go mess in sovereign countries. It's not exactly a United States of Europe. Right, true. And and Macron I think is definitely taking advantage of this um for his own domestic political benefit. It's one of those funny crises where both sides are deriving, I think, an enormous amount of domestic political benefit from this. Macron really doesn't lose anything by recalling the ambassador. He looks strong um, in the face of the Yellow Vest movement. It's probably beneficial for him to, you know, sort of stir up a little bit of French pride and French nationalism. At the same time, uh, when you're a populist sort of nationalist party, like the two Italian parties in power, then what you do is stir up populist nationalism. And so they're clearly not losing any votes over nitpicking with France either. Now, the interesting thing about the Yellow Vest movement and uh, DeMaio's encouragement of it is that a lot of or a significant number of them seem to want to enter electoral politics and run in the EU parliamentary elections that are coming up. And this is um, – what does that do to the whole situation? Right. So this gets back to, I think, my point about about European politics becoming more European rather than happening in between the heads of nation states of the member countries. And, as, I mean, Steve Bannon was here in Europe months ago trying to set up this transnational European populist front um, to go and sort of take over control of the EU. And I think that unlike a few years ago when lots of these Eurosceptic parties really wanted to leave the EU with Brexit being the chaotic mess that it is, their message has kind of shifted to we want a different EU. And so they would like to implement, you know, anti-migration policy, um, more spending, more, you know, looser economic policy at an EU level. And so that's this division that sort of has sprouted up that Macron himself um, was promoting this division of what he termed progressives versus populists in terms of the EU. So this is definitely important to keep in uh, in mind that the European elections are happening in May. And so this is the major dividing line um, on the European election front. And does it, who does the insertion of the yellow vests hurt the most? Because it seems like uh, Macron might not mind these guys coming in and diluting some of the other populists who run for EU parliament. Exactly. So ironically, it probably helps him electorally um, the Yellow Vests have their largest share of support from members of La France Insoumise, which is the far left party headed by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and the far right party um, used to be named the National Front, now it's National Rally, headed by Marine Le Pen. And so their presence, a hypothetical Yellow Vest political party and polling, shows that it draws, siphons significant amounts of support from both the far left and the far right. So so it's ironic, but Macron is probably hoping that they do end up running their own list of candidates in the European elections, and he'll benefit. All right. So it, I'm kind of still confused about Macron's ultimate uh, objective here. Is he a member of the European elite that wants to squash a, uh, a Europe-wide populism – or is he a crafty politician trying to take advantage of this whole thing? I think a little bit of both. I think Macron definitely wants to squash European populism. He has a vision for the EU, which is um, to be substantially 
more integrated than it is now. One of his major policy proposals was to have a European uh, a parliament and a budget for the Eurozone in addition to the European Parliament. Um, that has sort of fallen by the wayside because there wasn't the partner in Merkel that he thought he would have. Um, so I think he's trying to, as he wants to relaunch his presidency in France, take advantage of the fact that the European elections offer him a moment to do that. And if he can use the yellow vests as a way to split the votes of his opposing parties, then he'll he'll be happy to do that. But um, but I think he he definitely on an EU level wants to quash populism and anti-EU sentiment because he would love for there to be more integration. You know, I think that actually this gets to one of the ways in which um, maybe the American left misunderstands Macron. I think the label neoliberal is misapplied sometimes. Um, a lot of the policies that he's promoting are feasible at a European level and not feasible at a French level. For example, like taking action on taxing um, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Starbucks, large corporate tax evaders um, is something that the French government wants to do at a European level, but it's probably not effective to try and do it at only a French level because France just doesn't have the weight to go after those companies on its own. Um, wealth taxes are probably effective at an EU level and maybe not effective at a French level. And so one of their arguments for rearranging the wealth tax um, which applies at 1.3 million euros of wealth, is is that it, it's not effective to have a wealth tax in France when somebody can just move across the border to Brussels or Amsterdam and then no longer have to pay that tax. Uh, well, do you look at Macron, uh, while he might translate kind of as a, seem like a neoliberal to people in the United States, he's more of just a traditional France elitist and he, he gets the yellow vests can take advantage of that. He just – he looks out of touch with the, the working man. This is uh, – he time and time again looks out of touch with the working man. Yeah, I think he does come across as elitist. And one of his major ongoing mistakes have been these little off-the-cuff comments that I think reveal a real sense of elitism in him. Um, I, I think it would be hard to not overestimate one's capabilities when you as a candidate kind of destroy the existing political landscape and win the presidency in a country that that really has always fallen along heavily institutionalized parties and then all of a sudden you're this young guy who blows all that up and you're president i think he was overconfident in the beginning i think he also you know is a product of of a very elite french educational system which gets to some of the legitimate complaints behind the gilets jaunes which are that social mobility is, you know, a, a child of a blue-collar worker born to parents in Paris is almost twice as likely to make it into the white-collar world as the child of blue-collar workers born to parents in rural central France. So there's a lot of, of urban-rural divide in France and a lot of rigidity in the educational system that produces an elite that I think has a certain amount of groupthink. Um, at the same time, I, I don't know if a lot of the claims about Macron are are really justifiable given his policies. And I think the roots of the Yellow Vest movement go a lot deeper than just this presidency. I'm talking with Alexander Hurst in Paris. He wrote last month in the New Republic an article called The Ugly, Illiberal, Anti-Semitic Heart of the Yellow Vest Movement. What is the ugly, illiberal, anti-Semitic heart of the Yellow Vest Movement? 
<laughs> um, right. So that, that title, I think, is a, a little bit harder hitting than the content of my piece. But what wasn't going reported in Anglophone or American media was this anti-Semitic illiberal component that really has been driven by a lot of conspiracy theories. And so if you go on Yellow Vest Movement Facebook pages, of which there are many, you find lots of articles promoting fake information. Uh, for example, there was a a widely reposted article claiming that Brigitte Macron, Emmanuel Macron's wife, was being paid half a million euros a year by the French state. She makes zero euros a year from the French government. Um, there's a lot of of news from Russia Today, Sputnik, Ruptly, which is Russia Today's version of Now This videos. Um, so there's just a lot of fake information and the the central pole that you tend to always find in these conspiracy theories is a lot of anti-Semitism, and that's definitely been present. Um, as for the illiberalism, you know, this is not a character, character, characterization of all of the gilets jaunes, but there is a significant component of the movement that, that just wants to overthrow the government and sort of replace it with this ongoing constant referendums online. Um, and so there is a significant component that doesn't believe really in liberal democracy that was acting to stop um, the distribution of newspapers that contained uh, critical editorials of the Gilets Jaunes um, that sought to, you know, Eric Drouet and Maxime Nicole, two of the leaders of the biggest Facebook pages for the Gilets Jaunes movement, have called repeatedly for sort of armed insurrection. Um, so there is this really sort of distasteful component to the Gilets Jaunes at the same time, as there is, you know, a lot of legitimate empathetic concern for real people in rural areas who are worried about making ends meet. Ultimately, what do you think all the hubbub from the last week or so is going to mean for the Yellow Vest movement? Does it mean it's dispersing and becoming all these different things? and Or is it going to put more people in Yellow Vests? Mm, I think it already was all of these different things. I, you know, their, their demands were widely varied. Um, the people participating in it were widely varied. It's always sort of been this, uh, this convergence of the far left and the far right who both think that ultimately they can take over once they topple the government. Um, but eventually that will have to fracture. We'll have to see when they really start running candidates in the European elections, what those policy platforms look like. I don't know if this Italy-France argument at the moment is really going to have any impact on the Gilets Jaunes. I know that they're, they're kind of split within the movement over whether or not they want this interference from De Maio, who, again, is the Italian left, um, while Salvini is the Italian right. Alexander Hurst is writer and executive editor of We Are Europe magazine, and he wrote in the New Republic last month about the Yellow Vest movement. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's happening between France and Italy and the Yellow Vests. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, film contributor Milo Stalik talks with director Michael Glover-Smith, Chicago filmmaker, about his third film. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Rendezvous in Chicago is a new film about romantic relationships. It tells the story of three couples, one in their early stages, one several months into a relationship, and one about to break up. Here's Worldview film contributor Milos Stalek. Chicago is celebrated for its theater culture, but less known for its multi-layered and vibrant film culture. Films that are conceived, produced, and made here by Chicago filmmakers. In this series, WBEZ's Worldview looks at how film in Chicago is evolving. Michael Glover Smith is a narrative filmmaker whose third independently produced and made feature, Rendezvous in Chicago, opens this week. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And we also have Claire Cooney, who stars in the opening episode of Rendezvous in Chicago. Hi, thanks so much. So, Michael, third film, all of the three films are kind of in the same vein, relationship (laughs) movies, young people, Mm -hmm. kind of chamber pieces. How did you come to this? Well, relationships are a source of endless fascination for me personally. Why? Well, a relationship is, uh, I think, a perfect subject for a narrative because every relationship is a narrative. You know, a relationship has a beginning, middle, and end. So uh, even if two people are together forever, you know, somebody's going to die eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the end. Um, and I, with this particular film, this was the first one I did um, that's three separate vignettes. You know, I, I never want to do the same thing. I always want to come at it from a different angle. So I thought telling the arc of a single relationship using three different couples would be kind of a new way to re- because, revisit some Right, themes. because all of the films are about relationships beginning and ending, right? I mean, yes. the three, uh, the, the, the first, the first <laughs> element, the engagement or possible engagement in which Claire is the star, <laughs> and uh, the sec- second one, which is commitment, yes. and the third, which is a separation. So that's kind of the arc. Well, the, yes, exactly. I mean, they, they say the oldest story is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy finds girl. <laughs> okay, right. So but, we're, we're kind of like that. <laughs> okay, but I'm interested in how you evolved your style. You know, why, for example, your films are so dialogue heavy, why you really believe in the script so much, how the script evolves? Mm. How do you... Well, I think they are dialogue heavy, but they're not – the dialogue is – Less important, I think, than a lot of people realize. Um, The dialogue doesn't tell you as much as the behavior of the characters, the actions of the characters. Um, A lot of these characters, I think, suffer from self-deception. They're not saying what they really mean. So um, if you're the kind of viewer who expects for the dialogue to kind of tell you what the film is about and to hold your hand through the process, you, you might not be watching correctly. But they're always talking. Right. What, but isn't that, isn't that human nature? Isn't that the way people behave? But you, it's not like it's a mumblecore kind of film. Like, you write very specific scripts. Like, you don't kind of say, talk about whatever. Like, you write very specific, intelligent, funny dialogue. Like, very clearly, it's a written script. It's not, it's not like a it's not improvised or mumblecore kind of thing. So that's not talking for talking's sake, well, I don't think. No, you're, you're right. I mean, there's a great Raymond Carver story called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. And I think that's, um, that kind of gets at the, f- at the fact that when people do talk about love, they do it in a very indirect way. Right. And so... So how do you write? I mean, this is a, I mean, this obviously relationships, young people. Do you do what Eric Romer did, which is to sit around and eavesdrop? Or... Uh, <laughs> 
Well, Eric Romare is a hero of mine personally, but no, I, I don't eavesdrop. Oh, become a voyeur on the youth culture. I mean, well, I, I, I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I do teach a lot of first and second year college students, um, and I probably do pick up a little bit here and there. Um, also, my wife and I have been together for 12 years, and she. Uh, will say things that I think are hilarious, and sometimes I do write them down. And she's gotten mad at me when she realizes that the <laughs> things she said have ended up in my films. So, Claire, when you uh, entered uh, Michael's production of Rendezvous in Chicago, the script was fixed. Yes, it was. I, you only showed me my part initially. Right. So it's, you know, the three-part film. And so uh, we'd worked together before. Uh, we'd been friends for a while. And also I did the casting for his last film, uh, Mercury in Retrograde. And so we were, we wanted a role for me to to play and we wanted to work together on something. And so he showed me the first part, the part I'm in. And I thought it was like the funniest thing he's ever written. And and I, there were tweaks um after we met, but that it was it was pretty much a fully formed thing. Had you had you written all three at that point? I had. I had written all. Okay. Three, yeah. yeah. So you, I don't think you told me that. I think I think you said you were working on things. Yeah. So, well, yeah. so he show, he said he showed you his part, mm-hmm. but it's a two character uh, situation yeah. essentially yeah. that you're in, right? Yes. A guy's trying to pick you up, and you play the <laughs> yes. graduate student, the postgraduate student, trying to get her degree. There's yes. a very funny conceit in this having to do with Dostoevsky. And I found it delightful, yeah. A version of strip poker. Exactly. Uh, so how did you then work with your with your co-lead or co, co-actor? Kevin Webby, uh, he's delightful and he's a very unique, uh, hilarious individual. And so we had n- met through Mercury, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and I found him wonderful, but we had a friendship. So the idea of him hitting on me or there being a flirtation there was... Not our dynamic at all, and, and so that that was really exciting for me to like completely turn upside down our our friendship, um, and we had a great time. And like the kind of power dynamic that you see um, in the film came supernaturally. We just started rehearsing, and that chemistry fully came out. Um, it, it's so much fun to play with him, and he and I have a very um, mischievous kind of relationship, I think. Yeah. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Talik, uh, speaking with filmmaker Michael Glover-Smith, whose new film Rendezvous in Chicago opens this week, and with Claire Cooney, who stars in one of the film's three episodes. So you mentioned rehearsal. So was this a very heavily rehearsed film? So that How do you achieve economy? Because obviously this is not a $50 billion production. <laughs> we, we sh- I'll tell you, we shot the whole film in eight days, wow. which is super fast, a very tight schedule for a, for a feature. Um, we had one day of rehearsal. And we rehearsed right bef- the, the day before mm-hmm. we shot. And so, um, you know, I, I, look at the f- I look at rehearsal as being the final process of revising the script. I mean, that's – I don't like to rehearse things to death. I like to hear the actors speak the lines and then if something doesn't sound right, we'll make final tweaks during rehearsal. We went through it twice. We had a yeah. glass of wine and we were just hanging out at Mike's house. And it was great to get all the laughs out. Because the two of us were just losing it for the first half of our rehearsal because it was so funny and so – it was a very interesting dynamic for us to explore. And so it was great to have most of the laughs out from rehearsal, get to like know each other in in this new way Mm -hmm. and be able to dive right in on the first day. So is this another Romeresque? kind of uh, reference because I mean at least the early Roma right he believed in only the first take was all you all you needed (laughs) (laughs) you know for me it's really more out of necessity than anything but 
Um, I think, you know, I think there is such a thing as being over-rehearsed. You know, when I rehearse, I like to feel like we're about 80 percent there mm-hmm. because when I was making my first film, there were times when I felt like they nailed it in the rehearsal and then you can't recapture that spontaneity mm-hmm. when you're shooting. So I feel like if you're 80 percent there in rehearsal, you're going to get the spontaneity you need in one or two takes. What do you think are your strengths as a filmmaker and what are your challenges? Um, I'm interested in... I'm in, all I'm interested in are characters. You know, I'm not interested in plot. Uh, so I think that I, I understand people. Um, and I'm, as, as a filmmaker, I'm trying to, you know, understand myself and the world around me better. And so that's what I'm doing with uh, these character-based films. So, was, uh, Claire, was Michael somebody who was always, like, whispering in your ear, do this, do that? <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a very laissez-faire director, which I enjoy. Occasionally, I'd have to say, like, is this, is this okay? Do you like it? He'd be like, yeah, 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 don't worry, I'm not telling you anything because I like it. You know, I'd be like, okay, cool. He's very, uh, lo- like, allows the actor to have the freedom to explore what they want to do, which is delightful. And then occasionally there'll be a specific thing that he's extremely passionate about wanting to get exactly right. But he is not at all the kind of guy who's constantly saying, actually, on this little breath between this line, pick up the coffee cup and sigh and look to the left. <laughs> like, he's not, he's not like that at all. He, he's much more exploratory in that way. So you came to Chicago from Detroit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chicago, as a measure or center of opportunity is yeah. what for you in film? Because you've been in like Chicago PD, I mean commercial crap, if you pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Okay. I... How do you learn how to act for film? That's mm-hmm. another question yeah. because the training often is not there for, right. for, for uh, acting for film. Right. And then how do you maintain your kind of own artistic vision given the opportunities that are here in Chicago? So I went to Notre Dame, which is not an acting school per se. So I did, I had, I think I have a, a natural inclination for acting, absolutely. And then I did school at Steppenwolf, which is a wonderful training program. Um, and again, Chicago is a very th- theater-heavy kind of place, so my kind of training ground was in the theater, which I think is actually a tremendous base for any actor. Uh, and then I've always been pretty subtle and pretty small in my acting choices. I've always been called too small for stage. People are like, <laughs> bigger, go, you know, you need to show more, show more. I'm like, well, that's not real. So I always had a hard time with big stages. I wanted to be close up. So I think I was always inclined towards that. Uh, and then I did an uh, uh, on-the-camera class with uh, Stephen Cohn, who's a wonderful uh, filmmaker. And Honestly, the filmmaking scene here, I made my own short film called Runner, and that kind of is what brought me into, like, the indie filmmaker scene and, you know, these lovely friends of mine that were making good work. It's honestly just the personal connections and um, doing stories that interest me. You have to pay the bills and get, you know, more corporate things or more commercial things as well, but um, I find that there's a really vibrant filmmaking scene here. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Eloy Stelic speaking with filmmaker Michael Glover-Smith and Claire Cooney, whose new film, Rendezvous in Chicago, opens tonight. Michael, because you make all of your films, including Rendezvous in Chicago, kind of like chamber chamber pieces, Mm -hmm. a lot of it depends at least in my mind, and it's especially visible in your second film, the one shot in Michigan, Yes, um, really depend upon having kind of an ensemble of actors in a way. Yeah. And, and when, that ans- when the evenness or the talent of that ensemble falters a little bit, yeah. and Bergman is a perfect example of comparison to this, it's really noticeably visible. So how do you, given the constraints of how fast you shoot, get that talent pool to be at an equal level? 
Well, the talent pool, I think, is on an equal level. Um, I try to make sure of that during the casting process. But I, I think I know what you're talking about. In Mercury, I think there are different acting styles at work. And there is a little bit of a clash. And I actually kind of liked that uh, because some of the actors came from the theater world. Some came from film. Um, some were models and so on and so forth. And balance is achieved through the chemistry of the actors. And again, it goes back to casting because um, I always say when you're making a film about a relationship between two people, you don't just cast the two best actors. You cast the people who have the best chemistry. So um, that's yeah. why callbacks are so important. We found that for the, I mean, because I assisted in casting the two roles that are showcased in the middle mm-hmm. episode of the film. And uh, we loved these two different people, um, but they didn't have chemistry w- with each other. So we chose one and then we cast somebody else. So I think that that's the point. The best actor in the world can look like they're just kind of out to sea if they don't have a partner that they get along well with. It's just like you're hitting the wall and you're not making progress. You're not making a connection. What do you want Rendezvous in Chicago to do? (laughs) (laughs) Well... I, I mean, commercially, I, I really don't care. You know, I, I, okay. I, you made I, it. You spent the money. And, you know, I'm 43 go, years go old. I'm I'm a you know I'm a teacher. I have a nice life. Okay. Um, I want it. I want a, people to relate to it. You know, I want people to see themselves reflected in it. And so, what do you want it to do? Do you besides commercially though? I mean, do you want it to like get people to think about relationships? I mean, to what? Well, because it's really a film about trust in a way, right? I mean, isn't trust the element in this? Trust is a theme that runs a through theme, all three. All three episodes. What, what do I want uh, people to get out of it? I mean, I hope somebody will get divorced after watching it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> because maybe you'll realize you're in the wrong kind of relationship, mm-hmm. you know. And why do you want to stay and make uh, films in Chicago? Obviously, you have a life here. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the filmmaking community here is very tight-knit. You know, I was very lucky to team up with uh, Women of the Now, who are a great uh, filmmaking, uh, female filmmaking collective. And um, it's just everyone here is very, very supportive of each other. And uh, we, had, we had a phenomenal crew. And I think that's something you can't find probably in other cities like New York or L.A. You cannot? Uh, n- not no. I mean, this is the Midwest. Right. You know, this is Chicago is known for being friendly and neighborhoody in a way that other major cities are not. So, what do you think? The both of you, what do you think the aesthetic potential of Chicago film is? You know, I mean, is there a case for a new wave in Chicago? I mean, I think so. I mean, uh, there are a couple of things at play here. One is that you get to be on the ground floor ground floor of something uh, and you get to kind of if you have a success here that success counts for so much more than that success would if you were somewhere else I think that here if a film that gets into a big festival here is good for the whole city like no one's competing against each other in that way yet hopefully one day we are <laughs> like you know it, keep, keeping our friendly spirit but hopefully there's more competition moving forward uh, I learned this from my, my film but it was certainly true for his film that like the amount of cast and crew here that is spectacular is huge and uh, we need the amount of money people are investing in films to align with that. We need more people to invest in films and believe in films here because the energy is there. People want you to use their locations to film. People want people. People are still excited about film here. You know, in Los Angeles, everyone's d- dentist is also an actor. You know, <laughs> and here it's still an exciting phenomenon. And I think that that's something to capitalize on and to move forward with. And I think that Chicago has always been known for great acting, gr- gritty acting, gritty stories, raw um, kind of explosive storytelling, and and that I think will transition 
transition into film in a really great way. The film is called Rendezvous in Chicago. It opens tonight, and we've been speaking with filmmaker Michael Glover-Smith, who directed it, and Claire Cooney, who starts in the first episode. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. And Rendezvous in Chicago opens tonight at the Siskel Film Center. Coming up after the break, we'll hear some gorgeous Polish folk music and hear about a new documentary on a Bosnian biker gang. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. With me is Nari Safavi. He's our global citizen friend, and he's going to get a couple of suggestions for you. Hey, Nari. Uh, good day, Jerome. We're going to go to Eastern Europe today, and where our first stop is going to be Bosnia-Herzegovina. We've got a film, a documentary that's showing for a week at uh, the Music Box Theater. It's called Among Wolves, and the director is Sean Convoy, and he's on the line with us. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Thanks for having us, having me. <laughs> Sean, you dropped me a line, and you said that this was this film has been a twelve year journey for you. You sold everything, bought a one way ticket to the Balkans, and wanted to make a documentary that humanized people. And you settled on a Bosnian biker gang. Yeah, um, <laughs> that, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Well, uh, they've actually painted a picture of humanity uh, for me that I'm really proud to, um, you know, put on display in the film for you all. Um, they they show how much can be done with with a very little, and how uh, stereotypes are uh, to be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, this is a congratulation to you. Uh, you have you've captured a lot of really colorful and interesting characters in here, and uh, very doing very minimal intervention, avoiding narr- narrators, uh, avoiding the f- uh, interview format, uh, and it's visually very captivating what you have done. But uh, is this? Uh, did you feel? I, I felt that uh, this society is kind of dealing with these post-conflict situations and. It's trying to channel that energy after a conflict in a positive direction, but uh, they're kind of at a loss as to what's what's going on. Is that uh, do I have the right impression? Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say at a loss. I would say that mm-hmm. the challenges that the society has just built in in the post-war um, environment is just like beyond what what we're used to here, especially in North America. Um, it's they have an unofficial 70% unemployment rate. There's absolutely, there was industry before the war. Now there is absolutely no industry. You know, it's like the, the only chance for young people for the most part is to leave. Um, and that's actually even very difficult to do. So it, it's, it's, it's an uphill battle. And in that, that's what one of the many things I wanted to portray was like, you know, we focus so much on the conflict that is war and the politics that surround war that 
I don't feel like there's enough attention that's given to the healing process and the aftermath and the pieces that are left to pick up once the cameras have moved on from from war. And what they're doing is they're actively trying to better their sphere of influence um, in any way possible, whether it's bringing um, a, a jacket up to a shepherd who, uh, you know, they witness in, in the rain on the top of a mountain or they're do, rewiring electrical work for a, uh, a kindergarten, like in the Serb town next to their town. It's just like it, it just it didn't matter. Whatever they could do to help, they would help. And they end up defending a threatened herd of wild horses, this motorcycle club. Yes, that the the leader had met on the front line when at the age of 20, um, he was the leader of his paramilitary group that kept war from coming to Libno. So he has this strong bond with this herd. And then on top of that, I saw this herd as greatly symbolizing the strength and survival they're looking for in their own lives. Exactly. The horses end up playing a symbolic role in this film. And and the wild horses are not so wild, actually. They're very used to humans being around them. They're just unowned and, you know, un, unclaimed by people. So Pretty much. Yeah. 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 They're, they're, I, would, I would just say that they're used to those humans. They're less, they're less used to other humans. They, I see. <laughs> okay. They're, they're intelligent animals, so they, they could recognize, after dealing with those humans long enough, they know. Well, congratulations <laughs> on the uh, film, Among Wolves, and it's showing for a week at the Music Box Theater, and uh, t- it sounds like a terrific effort, and it was worth your 12 years. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't change anything. It, it, was, uh, it was a fantastic journey. Congratulations. Great job. Uh, Sean Convoy, his film Among Wolves, uh, is opening for a week at the Music Box uh, starting today, tomorrow, at the Music Box right. Theater. Yeah. Thank you. Nari Safavi, we have a second a featured element here. What is it? Absolutely. It's about a cappella, and it's about some really uh, interesting and uh, beautiful Polish music, a cappella music, that uh, a fellow Chicagoan has assiduously gone and invested time and investigated and has brought back to Chicago for us. Jonathan Miller is here. He's the founder and artistic director of Chicago Acapella. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you do all kinds of music in Chicago a cappella, but you've gotten deeply involved in global music. What happened? Well, in this case, we have a huge Polish population here, and we wanted to honor some of that heritage with our art form. So I had done a similar thing. I had gone to Mexico for original program research in 2014, came back and did a program, and then there's going to be a follow-up program of Mexican music next season. But for this, uh, it was our turn to go to Poland and really uh, to discover what was there and to do honor to that heritage. I was telling Nari about it earlier um, before we came in the studio. It was one of those research trips where you go with certain assumptions about what you're going to find. And in my ca- in this case of going to Poland, most of the assumptions turned out to be wrong. So when Chicago a cappella gets on stage, we have 10 singers on stage, all very accomplished choral musicians who can sing virtually anything that you put in front of them. The question is, what are you going to have them sing? And I went with the assumption that there would be lots of composers setting Polish folk music, sort of the equivalent of Shenandoah or Home on the Range or Red River Valley, and that I could just gather all that stuff and come back to Chicago and turn it into a program. Well, that was pretty naive. Um, one of the reasons that this is the case, that my assumption was naive, was uh, when I went to Poland, everybody said, the guy you need to talk to is the professor at the Chopin Conservatory in Warsaw, a man named Paweł Łukaszewski, who is the big 
dog in Polish contemporary choral music. He's famous. He's got an international reputation. His stuff is drop-dead beautiful. And he, he teaches and mentors young composers. He's yeah. a professor of composition. So I, I had an hour with him, and it was a great way to start the trip because the first thing he did was he took out a piece of paper and he wrote down the names of about 20 other composers and said, go find stuff by them. It's all good. They're all great. You'll do very well. The other thing he said when I asked him, how come I can't find Polish folk music in choral arrangements? And he said, well, you have to understand some of the political history here. He said in the 50s and the 60s under the Stalinist regime, the government tried to dictate to the musical community what official, acceptable, sanctioned Polish folk music was. Only these melodies, only these lyrics – and the composing community basically said, oh, we don't really want to play that game. Let's go find a different voice. Let's create an alternative tradition. So it almost became a quiet act of rebellion among these classically trained composers about what they were going to do. So for inspiration, they turned to texts in Latin and the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church, which is you know the beloved institution in Poland. And so for the last 50 or 60 years, more than – Polish folk music being set for choir, you have these gorgeous settings, very lush, beautiful, of prayers from the Latin liturgy. Um, yeah, go ahead, please. We're, we, we've got some music. We should play it because it's fantastic. Thank you. Um, Let's go ahead and play it, and then I'll tell, what, tell, tell them what it is. Chicago a cappella and some of their program Polish Splendor, which is having four performances coming up here, and that was recorded at WFMT Studios. And man, is that gorgeous, Jonathan Thank you. Miller. Thank you so what much. What was that? That was the second in a cycle of ten Polish folk songs on soldier themes by the very famous Polish composer Witold Lutosławski, who mostly wrote orchestra and chamber music and, you know, really uh, big stuff with instruments. This is the one, one of the few examples of a cappella music that he wrote. He wrote it on a commission from the Polish Armed Forces, and it was really important to him to pick folk tunes and lyrics that wouldn't be seen as just sort of pandering to the state, but that could stand on their own as uh, a really high-quality music. It was originally written for men's chorus, wow. and Paweł Łukaszewski, my friend in Warsaw, reorchestrated it for mixed voices, so we've got three sopranos, two altos, two tenors, three basses, ten of us. So what you're hearing right now is those ten, those ten singers. 
Wow, the stories and the narratives behind them are almost as interesting as the music itself. So yeah, uh, it's really fascinating. And you're going to be doing some uh, a collection of what's called the cabaret music and uh, the sort of a t- Polish tango and things like that too. So. Exactly. So one of the other fun stories uh, about this concert is that um, I'm Jewish and I had uh, spent some time in my trip to Poland. I was in Warsaw for four days and Krakow for four days, and I spent time in both Jewish communities in both cities. And I met a woman named Ellie Shapiro, who's now back in Berkeley, California, who's a big scholar of Polish Jewish music. And she explained to me that the two forms of Jewish music to survive the Holocaust are klezmer, which we all know from Jewish weddings, right. et cetera, and what's called kabaret, mm-hmm. which is sort of the, the Polish uh, swing standards or right. – um, you know, popular music. And it turns out in Poland, just as was the case in New York, it was Jewish songwriters, Jewish lyricists, and Jewish composers who are writing the stuff that captured the imagination. So just as people may not be aware that Irving Berlin, who was Jewish, wrote White Christmas, then you have a pair of Jewish-Polish songwriters writing Warszawa Moja Warszawa, which is a love song to the city of Warsaw. And anytime people from Poland start hearing this song, their faces light up. This is a (laughs) wonderful tune. So this is sort of in that cabaret mode, but it's a, it's a tango rhythm, right. so you could dance to it, and it happens to be set in Polish. Wow, that's an amazing uh, piece of history there. It, it made, what did you learn about Jewish life in Poland doing this? Oh gosh, um, very briefly, uh, the the Jewish communities are coming back. The synagogues are slowly coming back. I actually went to a synagogue service in Warsaw when I was there because um, my father had passed away, and I went to say Kaddish for him. But there's their cantor is a Polish woman being trained by a rabbi in L.A. who's training the emerging class of clergy in Poland because there's no one there's no one there to teach them, so they have to learn from Americans and Germans who are steeped in these traditions. But there's a Jewish music festival in Krakow, which is a big international thing. And this is amazing. This is what Ellie Shapiro went to went to Poland to do her dissertation on. There are 30 to 50 very small villages in Poland where there are no longer any Jews, but all of these little villages are putting on Jewish music festivals. And I went to one of them the last day I was there. Absolutely extraordinary. That's a topic for a whole other concert, a whole other whole other segment. Wow. But there's a lot there. It's a fascinating community, and a large number of people are actually converting to Judaism in Poland right now. I'm talking with Jonathan Miller, founder and artistic director of Chicago a cappella. They've got four shows coming up starting tomorrow in Evanston uh, on Polish Splendor. And we've talked about the traditional Polish folk songs, the Jewish songwriters of the 30s. You also have new music that you're doing from Poland. A lot of it, yes. Many things in Latin. When I was in Krakow, the conductor of the Polish radio choir handed me a huge spiral-bound notebook, said, you guys would do really well at this. And there's a piece called the Stabat Mater, which is an ancient Latin poem from from the liturgy in a gorgeous seven-minute setting by Marek Yashinsky. It is absolutely spine-tinglingly beautiful, even if you don't know Latin or don't know Polish. It's just it's phenomenal music. And there are a couple other things in Latin on this program. Uh, it's, it's nice that you're uh, performing four different times. You're in Evanston, Oak Park, uh, then at North Central College, and finally at the Copernicus Center on Sunday, February 17th. That's yes. awesome. Yeah, it's going to be our first time ever performing at Copernicus, and we're really excited about that. It's apropos. It's a, it's a huge cultural center for a Polish community here, and and it's, hu- and it's huge. I hope the audiences <laughs> turn out. Yeah, we're excited. Thank you. you. Yeah. Now, I want to leave plenty of time for the last song as we go out here. 
And um, I think people, you know, if they want more information, they can go to the chicagoacapella.org website and Correct. you can see that um, it's tomorrow in Evanston at the Nichols Concert Hall. And then on February 10th, you're in Oak Park at the Pilgrim Congregational Church. Saturday the 16th, you're in the Wentz Concert Hall at North Central College. And then finally at the Copernicus Center. It should be awesome. Uh, I'd love to sneak into a performance myself after hearing just Thank two you. songs. It's <laughs> just incredible. Yeah, Thank you. One thing I might mention, Jerome, is uh, because none of our singers are native Polish speakers, we have a, a wonderful woman named Kasia Dorula, who is a professional singer in Chicago Symphony Chorus. She's from Krakow. She was our Polish diction coach. So she came for several of our rehearsals, and, and the Polish diction is really phenomenal, largely thanks to her. Well, thanks very much for joining us, and thanks for producing this music for us. Jonathan Miller, founder and artistic director of Chicago Acapella, and thanks very much, Nari Safavi, for another fine edition of Weekend Passport. It was a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. continues to come at us faster and faster. Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.